The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture reading for this morning is in the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. If you need a copy of scripture, you can find it in the bottom of the seat ahead of you. And if you're using the Black Pew Bibles, it's on page 807. Once again, that's Luke 4, verses 14 through 30. When you're ready, please stand for the reading of God's word. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all surrounding the, the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they can throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing the forward march uh, of our study through Luke's gospel. Uh, This transition from chapter 4, verse 13, into chapter 4, verse 14, uh, represents a transition in sort of theme. And so, as we've been saying now for several weeks, chapter 1, up until the sermon last week, really encapsulated what we had been calling the Savior's resume. This morning now begins a, um, a journey into Luke's next theme that he wants us to see, something we're just going to title the Savior's Manifesto. That's the theme that hangs over this part of Luke 4, 5, and 6. It's also going to be the title of our sermon this morning because the launch of this manifesto, and we'll 
get into what that means here in a little bit, is actually launching right here from a Nazareth synagogue with Jesus grabbing the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and reading something out of Isaiah chapter 61 and then saying, this thing is true of me. So when you boil all of this down, Jesus in this Nazareth synagogue, what he's going to do with casting out demons and healing those who are sick in the latter part of chapter 4, it really boils down to this main idea right here, that because Jesus, this Jesus who is the qualified Savior that we've been talking about, because Jesus is the Spirit-anointed servant, that's what he's talking about when he quotes from Isaiah 61. There's a theme going on there in that prophet and what he's talking about, that there's a coming servant of the Lord who's going to be anointed with the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying, I am that one, and because this is true, I must do something. I must preach the good news of God's kingdom to poor sinners. Because Jesus is the Spirit-anointed servant, he must preach the good news of God's kingdom to poor sinners. And what we're going to do in landing the plane of our time together in God's Word is see that that model that Jesus leaves for us is actually the model that is what we are called to walk in obedience to, okay? So let's pause, let's pray, let's ask for the Holy Spirit to move in power, to move in might. We don't want this to just be a time of just mere words being spoken. We need the Holy Spirit to take what is being said and to pierce our hearts, amen? I don't know how many times we can approach the Word of God and it just rolls in one ear and out the other, yeah? Anyone ever been, been there in that place before? Ever sat through a sermon before and about 40 minutes goes by and then you just sort of snap out of it, you're like, what in the world has happened there? Part of it is our own doing, not coming with our hearts prepared. A large part of it is because you're in a spiritual war, whether you realize it or not. And Satan, the robber, of all things good, righteous, holy, and true, exists to rob you from hearing Jesus, seeing Jesus, knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, obeying Jesus. He exists to do it. So what he eats, he sleeps, he breathes. He exists to make sure you do not grow more and more like Jesus. And that includes this time right now. He would love nothing more than for you to check out for the next 40-ish or so minutes and just disappear into some mindless space and then sort of snap out of it in the next 40 minutes having been robbed of the power of God's word being preached. And that's why we pause and that's why we pray. I don't pray just because we need to ease into a sermon in some way. We pray because we need it. We pray because we need the Holy Spirit to move, okay? Let's pray along these lines. Lord, if we are here to hear just fancy words strung together, then we're on a fool's errand. If we are here because we're hoping that Pastor Jonathan has some fancy turn of phrase or some poignant word to lay before us, we are on a fool's errand. If we are going to hear the word preached, if our hearts are going to be changed, if our minds are going to be changed, if our lives are going to be different, if we're going to hear this good news for the poor, 
this liberty for the captives, this sight for the blind, this freedom for the oppressed, this year of the Lord's favor coming to us with all this punchy power that is intended by Jesus. We need the Spirit of Christ to move right now. It's not by might, as I think of our brother Zachariah's words, it's not by might right now that we're going to see these things, nor will it be by power, but it is going to be by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts, that these things will be done. So we ask, Lord, for your grace, your kindness, your favor right now to give us what we do not deserve, to open our eyes to behold the glories of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name, the name of King Jesus, our resurrected Savior, I pray. Amen. As you just heard me say, the Savior's resume is done. He's put before us and proven to us, that is, Luke has proven and put before us, the credentialed and qualified Christ. When you roll into chapter 4, verse 14, what you have before us is the, the programmatic tool the lens by which Luke wants us to see who Jesus is, what he's come to do, what he is going to show us in the remainder of Luke's gospel for Jesus to say what he says here in Isaiah 61. I just cannot stress to you enough the magnitude of what is going on in this Nazareth synagogue moment. Jesus, in essence, in saying what he says in Isaiah 61, is laying before us just what we're going to call the Savior's manifesto. It's a theme that's going to run through the end of chapter 6 and cast a shadow all the way into the end of Luke's gospel. Now, you ask the question, maybe manifesto, not a word I use a lot. Like, what, what does that mean? What is that idea that's carried with the word manifesto. In a nutshell, a manifesto comes down to this. It's a public declaration of purpose. It's as simple as that. It's someone getting up and saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. You need to know this. This is the fuel in my bones. This is what drives what I do. This is what drives what I say. This drives where I go or don't go, how I think, how I don't think. You need to know I exist for this purpose. All of that can be encapsulated with a singular word, manifesto. And that is what Jesus is in essence laying on us when he grabs the scroll of Isaiah, scrolls down to the prophecy of Isaiah 61, reads it, and in essence turns around and says, this is true of me. Everything that you have hoped for in regards to this future person showing up on the scene is staring you right now in the face. This is who I am. This is what I must do. According to Luke, it's inside this Nazareth synagogue that Jesus delivers his manifesto. Jesus is publicly declaring that he is the spirit-anointed servant that's been long promised by the prophet Isaiah. If you have not read the prophets in a while, you're doing yourself a disservice. If you haven't read the prophet Isaiah in a while, you're doing yourself a disservice. The prophet Isaiah, Luke leans on him so much to help us see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets like we were just singing about. And if what you may not know is that major portions of Luke's or of Isaiah's book is given over to this one known as the servant, the suffering servant. 
This one who is going to come, bearing shame, scoffing rude, in my place, condemned. He's going to stand. He's going to bear my transgressions, bear my guilt. He's going to walk in obedience to the Lord. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to be royal. He's going to be a warrior. He's going to be the one who can get the job done. If your homework assignment today were to be anything, it would be go home and read Isaiah 43, all the way up to Isaiah 62. That chunk of Isaiah is snapshot after snapshot, picture after picture of this coming one who we must have come because what he must accomplish must take place if we sinners are going to have any hope of salvation whatsoever. All of this is packed into the tension that is hanging in the air. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, because of what John the Baptist is doing in leading the way, preparing the way of the Lord, which is quotations from Isaiah before all of those servant snapshots show up, Remember what Luke said, there was this expectation in the air. There was this lingering sense, man, we're right on the cusp of God breaking in and doing something miraculous, doing something supernatural. If you remember, it was prompting them to go, man, are you this one, John the baptizer? Are you the one that our hopes are hanging on? And he says, no, but the one that you're looking for, he's right here. He's hanging right around the corner. And now has come the time in Luke's gospel where Jesus walks right through that door and unashamedly declares, I am this one that you've been waiting for. He's publicly declaring that the spirit-anointed servant, this long-promised Savior, is he. Since this is who he is, the spirit-anointed servant, and that is what Isaiah says we should be looking for, then it is also clear, according to the prophet Isaiah, what Jesus must do. And I use that word specifically, must. Jesus is using it of himself down in verse 43. There's something he must do. If you want to circle two verses in your copy of Scripture, the two key verses out of all of our text this morning would be verse 18 and verse 43. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is who I am. And because of this is who I am, anointed by the Lord God, by the Spirit, here's what I must do. I must proclaim good news to the poor. Verse 43, Jesus encapsulates it all by saying, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. There's your manifesto language right there. So in front-loading this encounter, Luke, remember, has a purpose. Luke told us in the first four verses of chapter 1, I'm writing to you so that you can be certain of the things that have been accomplished among us. And so now what he wants to do is after showing us the qualified Savior, he's pulling this Nazareth episode front and center and says, these are the glasses I want you to put on so you can see how Jesus operates, why he does what he does. He's front-loading this encounter at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, and in doing so, Luke is bidding us to behold and embrace point number one, the manifesto of Jesus. The manifesto of Jesus. You see this in verses 14 through 21. Remember, this is coming right on the heels of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. 
Jesus is returning from combat with Satan for those 40 days. Jesus, but notice, he is no limping savior. He did not go to war in the wilderness, and he's not sort of limping into the battle going forward. He is coming out of that combat as the victorious one who has proven his power, his authority to not go the way all the other sons of God had gone and actually to march forward and God's kingdom is going to ride forward upon the power and the authority of not the limping survivor but of the victorious Savior. He went into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit, we saw last week, being led by the Spirit, we saw last week. And now Luke says, verse 14, Jesus is returning in the power of this very same Spirit into Galilee, and a report is now spreading about him going out through all the surrounding country. And here is Jesus' encapsulating statement. He's teaching in their synagogues, and he's being glorified by all. This broad statement gets narrowed down into verse 16, and Luke is saying, now let me show you one such instance of this truth so that you might be able to understand the manifesto of the Savior. Verse 16, Jesus came into Nazareth. He's going to show us an example of this, where Jesus had been brought up. And as was his custom, I think it's interesting here, he shows us that Jesus was faithful to gather with the saints. Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. We know this to be Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. I would pay a lot of money to be a fly on the wall to see how this next step rolled out. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Jesus isn't sitting down because sermon time is done. Jesus is sitting down because the way it worked in synagogue worship was someone came, he stood up, he read the scriptures, he sat down in the position of a teacher, and he is about to say something about what he just read. This expectation's lingering in the air. People are seeing that John the Baptist is here. He's saying, I'm preparing the way for the one. Jesus zooms in on the prophecy that would have been known and would have captured the hearts of these people, saying, man, we can't wait till this Isaiah 61 figure shows up. Their eyes are fixed on him. No one's monkeying around with their phone. No one's falling asleep. No one's drawing doodles on their bulletin. No one's wishing that great Aunt Gertrude's potluck is maybe humming along like they wanted everyone it says had their eyes fixed on him and Jesus I'm sure said many things but Luke encapsulates it all by saying this Jesus began to say to them what you need to know today today right now in front of your face this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing audacious we know this story too well we hear this and we're just like I guess I guess so Maybe important, I don't know, probably. He's excited about it, maybe I should be too. We know this story too well. The audacity of a Galilean carpenter from the podunk dump of a town named Nazareth 
to step into a church and say, this prophecy of the prophet we know and love is actually being fulfilled by the one who's speaking to you right now. See, saints, I wish there was some way for me to stress to you the extreme importance of this event beyond me just telling you, hey, guys, this is extremely important. Like, I wish there was a little, like, important switch I could just throw in the back of your head and say, you need to sit up, pay attention, and zoom in right now. And I say this because the words, these words on the lips of Jesus, they're not just religious gibberish. Like, Jesus had to say something, he might as well say this, and then just say it's true. Like, no, this is not religious gibberish on the lips of Jesus. When he reads Isaiah 61 and then says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he is making the astounding claim that Isaiah's long-promised, spirit-anointed, sin-bearing servant who's going to fulfill the salvation promises of God is sitting right here in front of their faces. In other words, hope had materialized right in front of them. Faith, in a sense, is now sort of turning into sight. I'm with longing, hoping for that day for this Savior to come, and you're telling me I can actually go and like touch him right now? He's here in my time, my space, my synagogue, my hometown. This guy is the one? And Jesus is saying, yes. Yes. You see, every Jew knew that Isaiah 61 referred to the coming of the Messiah. Every Jew knew what the prophecy of Isaiah 61 was about. They knew that Isaiah spoke of a coming time when good news would be preached to the poor. Captives would be set free. The blind would be made to see again. The oppressed would be released. And the Lord's favor would be proclaimed. And with no hesitation and absolute clarity, Jesus is saying, I'm the one. I'm the fulfiller and the bringer of all that Isaiah was talking about. This is his manifesto. Luke is saying, put this lens on. View Jesus in this way. Why? Because we're forcing something on Jesus? No, because Jesus is saying, I'm telling you to see me through this Isaiah 61 lens. But notice how the transition from verse 21 into verse 22 is a transition that we don't quite fully expect as the narrative goes forward. Notice how quickly the tide is going to turn against Jesus as he begins to explain, now, because of who I am, this is what this is going to mean. You see, there's going to be a temptation on those then and anyone now to say, I'm going to tell Jesus who he needs to be. I'm going to build out a Jesus that exists to serve me according to my whims and my descriptions. Happy Jesus, never judging Jesus. Pat me on the back, send good vibes, Jesus. We're always prone to build a Jesus in our own image. But Jesus is not going to allow these people to do it. And that right there is part of the reason, the main part of the reason why they are going to murder, seek to murder Jesus here very quickly. So what's going on in this transition from verse 21 to verse 22 is the transition of the manifesto of Jesus to point number two, the offense of Jesus. The, the offense. He offends them. Not because Jesus is a jerk. Not because he's mean. Not because he's rude. But because the gospel offends. 
when we say this is what Jesus says in regard to sinners, when we say this is what Jesus is calling us to do, deny self, pick up cross, and follow after him, that is offensive to the ears of many because we don't love to deny self, we love to serve self. We don't want to follow, we want to be the leader. I don't want to die to self, I want to promote self. And the gospel is offensive as Jesus is going to model for us. Look there starting in verse 22. Starts off well. Jesus, upon reading Isaiah, sitting down, all eyes on him, scripture fulfilled in your hearing. What is the response? Verse 22. And all spoke well of him. This is great. This is good news. They all marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. We love what he's saying here. Amen and amen. There was a lot of amens going on from the synagogue crowd that day. And they are saying, is this not Joseph's son? So what you begin to see here is that long before Jane Austen wrote of Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet, it's actually the folks in a Nazareth synagogue who are giving us the first taste of a little bit of pride and prejudice. There's some pride going on here. These synagogue goers are proud of their hometown boy. Jesus, Nazareth, who knew? Who knew that the Savior would come from a town like ours? They're stoked that someone who had grown up among them could speak so well. It was their local carpenter with the gracious words coming from his mouth. But notice that lurking beneath the surface of their pride in Joseph's son. Is this Joseph's son? Is this the guy? The hung out Joseph Carpenter guy, he's going to be the Isaiah 61 for fulfillment? I can't believe this. This is great. But lurking beneath the surface of this pride is a prejudice that Jesus is about to expose. You see, they rightly understand that the gracious words of Jesus are just that. They are words of grace. Jesus is speaking words of God's grace. He's speaking of the Lord's favor. He's talking about how sinners can know the unmerited favor of God. These are words of invitation on the lips of Jesus, inviting people to come and partake of that unmerited grace. But what they fail to understand is that their preconceived ideas, that's what the word prejudice means. If you have a prejudice, you have a preconceived idea. I believe this thing is going to go this way. I've got no reason to back it up. I've got no, no rhyme to it. I just have called this preconceived idea to mind, and I'm operating on this way. I'm assuming this is how this thing is going to go. And it's this preconceived ideas that they have about this sin-bearing servant that are actually leading them, though, to craft a personalized Jesus. Why do I say that? I say that in part because of how they're going to react to Jesus when he clarifies what he came to do. They are stoked for the local hometown carpenter to be the spirit-anointed servant. They're going to be less stoked to hear Jesus say, me as the spirit-anointed servant isn't probably what you think it's going to be. We see this in two ways. The first is that when Jesus talks about what he's come to do as the anointed one, proclaiming good news to the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, What they are failing to see is that Jesus is talking here not just in physical categories, but spiritual categories. The second thing they're failing to see, this preconceived prejudice 
that they have against Jesus is this, that the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, these are categories that punch just beyond Israel, and they punch outward to include all people from every nation. What you're going to see is that the poor, captive, blind, and oppressed, they are going to approach this. They are approaching this in just merely physical categories. And then, because of that prejudice, they're going to assume that the spirit-anointed servant exists just for them as a Jewish people, not for all those dirty dog Gentiles out there, all those yucky people who, sure, they need it, but they do not deserve this grace. And Jesus is actually going to say, you got it flipped. you got it flipped. So on one hand, the people, their prejudices are leading them to see things somewhat rightly, you could say. They are poor and blind. They are an oppressed people. Those Jews in the synagogue are a sample size of what the larger, maybe corporate mentality of the people of God is, is like. They are a people held captive by Roman rule. This is just true. They are being oppressed by a governmental system, a Roman rule. Thus, they're drawing the conclusion that they are a people in need of someone like who Jesus just said he was. We're blind, we're captive, we're oppressed, we're poor. We need Jesus to come and do for us what he just said he's going to come to do because he is this one from Isaiah 61, but they're aiming a little too low. It is true that Jesus is going to operate toward the poor, toward the captives, toward the blind, toward the oppressed in the realms of material, physical things. Jesus literally does it in verse 31 where he's going to heal those who are oppressed by demonic activity. He's going to set free Simon's mother-in-law who is being held in the bondage of, of sickness. So there are realities of these physical, material things that are woven into the thread of Jesus being the good news bringer to the poor, captives, blind, and oppressed. But if you stop there, and many do try to stop there, many try to import into these words various theologies that are not what Isaiah has intended. Because if you go and you look at all the servant passages in Isaiah, we allow Isaiah to inform us what Jesus means here in this sense. And what you see is that while it is true, the Savior will bring a holistic realm to these people, the citizens of his kingdom. He is punching beyond that, and at the very center of it, though, are the spiritual realities. That he has come to bring good news to those who are poor in spirit, those who are impoverished of soul, to those who are not rich in righteousness, not rich in holiness. They're actually rich in the wrong thing, sin. Thus, they're poor. And they need good news. They are the ones who are held captive to sin. They are the ones who are spiritually blind. They are the ones who are oppressed by Satan's dark kingdom, by his minions. And they are the ones who need to be set free. As Isaiah's spirit-empowered servant, Jesus is referring to something much deeper. He knows that those he is looking at in that Nazareth synagogue, and he knows that those out and beyond this are spiritually blind. They are captives and oppressed as a result of their sinful rebellion against a holy God. Thus, they are poor and in need of the good news of Jesus. The good news that Isaiah, as Isaiah's spirit-anointed servant, Jesus alone, Jesus alone, has the power to set men and women free from their spiritual bondage to sin and Satan.
It's our disservice to go out these doors into the next six days and 22 hours not seeing people like this. And I'm not saying that because we are the better ones, holier than all those out there. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is Luke is begging us to come and see the lost world through the lens of Isaiah 61. To come and see that those we interact with downtown, corporate, neighbor across the street, family member, homeless, helpless, those who can help themselves because they have the goods, but are still spiritually blind, spiritually poor, spiritually captive, spiritually oppressed. For us to go out and look at someone who is dead in their sins and transgressions and try to sell them a bill of goods apart from the hope that the Lord Jesus Christ has the power and authority to set them free is to rob those people of the good news of the gospel. We so often, for whatever reason, do not approach the gospel through the language of freedom. To see people stuck in things that they cannot overcome because they will never be able to overcome them because they weren't designed to overcome them. They need the Savior who can set them free. Crack the prison doors open and say, let's break out of this joint because I have the power and authority to do so. That's gospel language. That's Savior language. That's good news language. Amen? So when we go out and say, well, what you might need is a little more education. Maybe you just need a better quality of life. Maybe you just need a couple of extra techniques to be happy in the bedroom. Maybe you just need someone to help you out financially. Maybe, 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 maybe it's to sell a bill of goods that will never deliver. What poor, captive, blind, oppressed sinners need is for the spirit anointed sin crushing servant is to exercise his power blow the prison doors open and lead a charge out of that prison On the other hand, what you see in the minds of these people is not only are they aiming too low, it is true. Now, let me just hit pause here real quick. There are various implications from that truth I just said. Various implications. I'll have socioeconomic realities to it. How we approach this idea of biblical justice, all these sorts of things. Those, those are realities. But what we do is we often get those flip-flop. We grab those externals and we make them the center And Jesus is saying, no, 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 let's hold the center to be the, the center that it was designed to be. We're going to let the prophet Isaiah inform us that this poor, captive, blind, oppressed are spiritual realities. But as we go in the name of Christ, carrying forward the mission of Christ who came to do nothing other than to preach the good news of God's kingdom, when we go in the power and the authority of this kind of spirit-anointed servant, what you need to know is that all these other externals will begin to see change as well. We need to get priorities right in this regard.
So do not hear me saying it doesn't matter if someone's homeless. It doesn't matter if someone's being oppressed, like in a justice sort of way. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we cannot say those externals are the gospel because the Bible doesn't allow us to say that. The Bible says the gospel is the good news that poor, captive, blind, oppressed men and women, spiritually speaking, need the spirit of the Lord upon the Lord Jesus Christ to set us free from the prison of sin and Satan and death. And then as that begins to happen, you've seen it in your own lives in various ways and you see it in the lives of others. These other externals begin to be affected and begin to change not because we've slapped some kind of 12-step program on them, but because we came to them with the power and the authority of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Close parenthesis. That was your second sermon within us. All right? So, the people in the Nazareth synagogue, I I know I'm laboring on this. We're going to go quicker as we go forward, but but I just want us to see this. Their, their, their prejudice is selling them short. They're hearing Jesus through a preconceived lens. What they're hearing Jesus say is, Jesus is going to be the one to set us free from the Romans. We're oppressed. We need to be set free. He's going to do it. They're aiming too low. Okay. The backside of the coin is this. Because this is their view of what Jesus has come to do, what they're doing is this. They're hearing this. Jesus is a Savior for the Jews only. We're the ones oppressed. They're the oppressors. Jesus should have nothing to do with them. Jesus should have everything to do with me. We deserve it. They don't deserve it. But what they're going to see is that their prejudice is revealed by the reaction to Jesus when he reminds them that the good news of God's grace is not just for them as Jews, but for the nations as well. This is going to incense them. They're going to become so livid at this thought that they're going to actually plan and attempt to murder Jesus, like right here at the very beginning of his ministry. You see, in John's gospel, if you go into, right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth gospel, John's gospel, the apostle John reminds us that Jesus knows the heart of man. He knows what's going on inside your heart, your soul. Thus, with that lens, you begin to see that Jesus is aware of their pride and their prejudice. And so he challenges them starting in verse 23. I had to ask myself, like, what on earth is going on to go from verse 22? We speak well of you. We're marveling. Is this not Joseph's son? To him all of a sudden, like, challenging them. Then all of a sudden, like, a couple verses later, they're wanting to murder him. Like, what is going on? That transition's going on there in verse 23, and it's this. Jesus is aware of their pride, their prejudice. He's going to challenge them. That's what's going on in verse 23. So he looks at them. Here's the challenge. Doubtless. You guys are going to quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You see, Jesus isn't here to tickle ears. He isn't here to give them what they want to hear. He didn't come so people could treat him like a golden corral buffet, picking and choosing a Jesus on their own terms. Everyone loves a Jesus who just saves me, but when Jesus says, I actually didn't come just to save you, I came to save those other people that you're really not fond of. All of a sudden, we have to begin to question, like, why does that not ride well with my soul? See, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, but first the lost needed to see how lost they really were, and Jesus does this by revealing the fact that they have created a Savior in their own image. And just as it was common then, so it is common today. Many craft Jesus in their own image. I can guarantee you, as 
secular, more and more secular our culture becomes, there is still a preconceived notion of who Jesus is. Challenge, going to work tomorrow and maybe just ask somebody. Five minutes or less, you'll hear no rebuttal from me. I'm just curious as to the answer to your question. Who do you think Jesus is? Be quiet and listen. Surely there's going to be some people who be like, yeah, I don't know. I can guarantee you the high majority are going to have some opinion of him. By the way, if you do this, let me know. I'd be really curious to know, know the answers here. Many crafted Jesus in their own image. Isn't it true? Don't we like to manage Jesus? We like to conform Jesus to our own wishes, to shape Jesus to fit our own purposes. Just think about it. The, any number of circumstances you were going through this past week where you tried to finagle Jesus to meet your expectations instead of you bowing and submitting to him. We often try to get Jesus to fall in with our program. We try to get Jesus to meet our designs of what we think he ought to do or be like. Anyone ever been, been there before trying to shape-shift Jesus to fit our mold? But Jesus, friends, Jesus loves us too much, and he loved these synagogue goers too much to leave them in this place. Thus the challenge of why he's saying what he's saying. He's exposing their prejudice by reminding them that as the spirit-anointed servant, his ministry will be like that of Elijah and Elisha. It will be a ministry to the Gentiles. It will be a ministry to the nations. It will be a ministry to those whom you would likely and least expect to come to know Jesus. And that's a challenge to us. All of us have someone in our mind, I can guarantee you, go, man, like if that person became a Christian, that would be really awesome for Team Jesus. And usually the reason why we say that is because this person has influence, this person has, has prowess, this person has prestige, this person has position, this person has power. Like if they could just come to Jesus, then they would be the ones who could really turn this whole ship around. The Team Jesus ship, which seems to be not doing so well this day and age. That's the reasoning, the thinking that's going on in our mind. But what Jesus is showing us here is that those who think they deserve it actually want nothing to do with it. That's what they're thinking. Yeah, I know we deserve it. We're the Jews, but I don't know that we really need it because we've got the covenants and the prophets and we're good. But don't you dare tell me, Jesus, that you're coming for the... I know they really need it, but they do not deserve to hear about the grace of the Lord, the Savior. They don't deserve it. Now, the temptation is in our heart and soul is to look at this right now and say something like this. Well, that was really ate up with those Nazareth synagogue goers, but that doesn't happen today. And I would ask you to hold yourself up before you eat any more of your shoe that's in your mouth. What about that lesbian couple that lives in your block? I don't know if they deserve that. What about the man in your workplace who was born a man but identifies and dresses as a woman? I don't know. Grace extends that far. What about the person who abuses children? 
no matter what side of the aisle you sit on politically, can you look across the aisle and say, that person deserves Jesus just as much as I deserve Jesus? See, in this day and age, we're quickly drawing lines to say, I'm Republican and those are Democrats. Or to say, I'm a Democrat, those Republicans. Yeah, I know the good people. There's a bunch of good people who deserve Jesus. But there's a lot of Sidonian widows and Syrian Naamans that live among us. And Jesus is saying, the person you least think is going to be a citizen of the kingdom is going to be a citizen of the kingdom. No one expected Elijah to travel up and decide and, and to talk to a widow, but here she is receiving the grace and the favor of a holy God. No one expected Elisha to do what he did to Naaman the Syrian. He bypassed a lot of people who thought they deserved it, but he goes to those who you least expect. My question is, who are those people in your world that you go, you know what, I, I, I just don't know. I have a hard time saying that they deserve this grace, this mercy, this favor from the Lord. And then to ask the question, Will I be like the synagogue goers and draw the conclusion that Jesus is not yielding to my prejudice and so I'm going to murder him? Or am I going to die to self? Me die, not him, me. And be conformed into his image on these things. See, Jesus exposes their prejudice by reminding them that he is the spirit-anointed servant. And what that means is that his ministry will go to those whom you least likely expect to be citizen kingdoms. They love the thought of a savior for the Jews, especially one who would free them from Roman rule. But a savior for the Gentiles was a bridge too far. And the proof of their prejudice is revealed by their seething response in verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff, i.e. murder Jesus. But passing through their midst, he went away. Ultimately, ultimately those who lived in Nazareth rejected Jesus because he did not measure up to their ideas of what a savior should be. They could not stomach the thought that Jesus has come as savior to dispense grace to those who do not deserve it. Notice that nothing will stop the forward march of God's good news to the poor. You might be tempted to go, wow, that, that first opening gambit of Jesus there in the Nazareth, like that didn't go so well. as like this a sign that the kingdom might sort of falter and stall out? And Luke says, mm, don't be so quick. And that's where you see lastly and quickly the third point, the authority of Jesus. That's what the remainder of the chapter is about. It's trying to ask this question. What does this good news to the poor look like? Will this good news to the poor speed forward? If this is the kind of reaction Jesus gets from preaching the good news of God's kingdom, does this mean it will stall out? And the answer is no. That's what the remainder of this chapter is all about. It looks like the power of Jesus' word overturning Satan's dark kingdom as he exercises his authority over the physical and the spiritual. Leaving Nazareth, Jesus, what did he do? He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So there's this word. It's the power of Jesus' word, the authority of Jesus' word that's overturning Satan's dark kingdom. Notice this language. Jesus was teaching them in the Sabbath. That's word. They were astonished at his teaching, that is, his word, for his word possessed authority. Verse 35, 
Jesus rebuked, that's word-driven, the spirit of an unclean demon saying, be silent, come out. That unclean spirit came out. Verse 36, they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Verse 39, Jesus is standing over Simon's mother-in-law and rebuked the fever and it left her. That's the power of his word. Verse 41, and demons also came out of many, but he rebuked them. That's the power of his word and he would not allow them to speak. Luke is just saying, listen, I know how it went in the Nazareth synagogue, but do not draw the wrong conclusion. His gospel will speed forward. Why? He has all authority. He has all power. Nothing, nothing is going to stop the forward march of the Spirit-anointed servant, the royal king that we need. We read of his authority in preaching. We read of his authority over the demonic. We read of his authority over sickness. So whether spiritual, physical, Jesus is the one with all authority and power, meaning this, the good news of God's kingdom going forward is not aspirational. This isn't Jesus sort of wishing upon a star. Man, I sure hope against hope that this thing goes forward. He's like, no, I will exercise power. I will exercise authority. This thing is going to march forward. This is what Jesus is doing. The silencing of demons, the healing of the sick is Jesus plundering Satan's kingdom. Amen? He's robbing it. He's, the, the binding of the strong man is already beginning to take place in this moment, and he is plundering Satan's kingdom in these moments. And these moments stand as the proof that God's kingdom has broken into this world in such a way that life with God under the rule of God is now available to all who would turn from the rebellion and trust in King Jesus. That's the good news of God's kingdom. That's the gospel of God's kingdom. That's the good news message you can take out into the next six days and 22 hours. You can go to those who are poor, captive, blind, oppressed, spiritually speaking, and say, did you know that you can actually have life, peace, hope, in God, with God. You can find all this by submitting to the rule of God. It is now available. You don't have to wait for it. It's now. It broke in with the coming of Jesus, and it is now available to all who would turn from the rebellion and trust in King Jesus. Basically saying this, I was a rebel. I committed treason against my king, but now I am turning from that and turning to him, and I am submitting myself, trusting to the king who came to save me. So look around you, saints. This is a spiritual battle raging around us. But don't, but don't forget the words, I think, that are timely and a great reminder, words of Martin Luther from his great hymn when he said this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we trembled not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. And what is that one little word? Finished. At the cross, when Jesus was dying and said, it is finished, it's three words for us, it was one word for him, that is the one little word that sealed the doom of Satan and his dark kingdom and gave proof that he is the one that we need. And because this is true, what is our call? What's our call this morning in light of all of this? It's a lot, I understand. 
Is it this? Wow. Endured another long one from Pastor John. Is it, wow, that's a lot of new information I didn't know. Or is it, I've got six days and 22 hours looming in front of me. And I'm not going to be reactive, but I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to roll into the next six days, and I'm going to roll into the next 22 hours proclaiming to those around me that there is good news for the poor, there is freedom for the captives, there is sight for the blind, and there is release for the oppressed in no one but one. In no one but one, Jesus Christ, the Spirit-anointed Son of God. Friends, we cannot be obedient to this call on our lives by living within the four walls of the church. We cannot do it. The obedience of the call of Christ to preach the good news of his kingdom, that life with God under his rule is available to all who would turn from the rebellion and trust in King Jesus has to take place in the next six days and 22 hours as we go about living everyday life. It has to. It has to. But the privilege and the joy of you and me is this. King Jesus has said, all this authority, all this power, it's here. You don't go this alone. You go in my power, my authority, empowered by my spirit, just like he was. May God help us, saints, to walk in ways that make much of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you help us? Just challenge us with this answer to this question right now, maybe, Lord. Who in my life needs to hear this good news? Who in my life needs to hear this good news? Who have you placed in my life that has access to this good news because I am there in their life? Lord, would you zoom us down to that one person? Would you help us to be bold, courageous, to go do the hard thing? To take the good news of the kingdom to those who don't necessarily want to hear it, but must hear it. God, convince us of these things, to not go in our trusting in our own strength, our own power, but to go trusting in the name above all names, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray these things. Amen.